To build your team and to give you the proper advice when it comes to investments, you're going to need a chartered accountant. In this interview, I talked to Kit, who's a professional accountant, who's assisting Mary and I, and also describes some of the things to look for when hiring this most important part of your investment team. Now let's get started. Would you rather talk about your sex life or money life? Surprisingly, most people would rather not talk about money, how to save it or invest it. This podcast is about helping you simplify your money life. Delivered by Dr. Henry Joseph Speck, a psychologist by training, Henry is a seasoned investor with over 40 years of successful investing in real estate, stocks and other alternate forms of income generation. Tune in to the twice-monthly podcasts to get his thoughts and tips on how to reach financial freedom. How to achieve the life you deserve. Now, here's Dr. Speck. So, uh, not too long ago when I was trying to run for municipal politics, I put it out there that if I got elected, I didn't win, by the way, uh, no surprise, but if I did get elected, I was going to um, start what I was calling a new venture fund where... New entrepreneurs could uh, receive up to $5,000 interest-free to start their small business, and it would come from my salary because I was going to give up my salary. And about that time, when I put it out there on the social media, uh, I had one wonderful response from an accountant, Kit Moore, who said that uh, should I be successful, he would volunteer his time monthly to be able to help these folks. So I was, when the election was over, Mary and I were looking for another accounting firm to help us, and if you read my book, you probably know why. I don't need to go into details. But uh, I thought, man, if this guy wanted to help these people, I've got to call him up, and maybe he can help me. So Mary and I met with Kit, and pretty impressed. So Kit's now officially part of our team, advisory team, telling us what to do and taking care of all our our tax information, and I'm now with him in his office because he agreed to do this podcast. Kit, how are you? Doing well, Henry. Thanks, and I do. I really appreciate the opportunity to serve you and Mary. Well, we're looking forward to it. So I'll tell you uh, briefly, Kit, we'll just go through a few questions I have. The first one is, as you probably know, um, being an old guy, I used to think you went to your accountants in March, brought them all your stuff in a box, and in April they would magically work it, and you'd pay less taxes, and you'd be a happy camper. That's really wrong. Tell me, if you can, what a CPA does today. All right. Well, hey, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, things have definitely changed, so here's what I typically do. When files come to me in a box, I tell people that their fee will <laughs> be un- unacceptably <laughs> they will be their fee will be unacceptably high, but that I'll take an hour or two at no cost to them, show them how to organize the data and bring it back to me. So it saves them money and frankly makes my life better. But the reality is the way things are going now, um, let's say that bookkeeping and accounting and basic tax compliance are becoming commoditized services that you can automate through the use of technology. And uh, my firm recognized that pretty early on in its practice. And so we have a couple different strategies to address that commoditization of routine data uh, manipulation and, and use for compliance. Now, what you should be looking for with your accountant, though, is what we'll call higher value add services. So if you establish a good relationship with an accountant that has invested in cutting edge skills, per se, then you should be you should have a good sounding board for your business strategy 
and initiatives that will help enhance the value of your company, which is ultimately the goal of being in business. And that's where I kind of differentiate myself a little bit. So when you look at 100% of your time as a, a chartered, is it chartered professional accountant? Did I say that right? Yeah, sure. So all accountants now are, will eventually become CPAs and chartered professional accountants. I'm also a uh, an old school chartered accountant and a certified management accountant. Okay, so uh, 100% is all the time you spend in your profession. What percent is doing what I described as the crazy tax time, people just want you to do that at the end of the year thing versus the entire year planning? Like what's the percent breakdown? Yeah. So typically in an accounting practice, almost a hundred percent of your time in the first three to six months of the year is on routine compliance activities. So, you know, if you assume that a lot of clients have uh, a December year end in a corporation, then their taxes are due typically by the end of March and they want to be filed by the end of June. So you spend a considerable portion of your time, maybe 80 80 to 95% of your time at the beginning of the year focusing on tax compliance and financial statement preparation, satisfying bankers, et cetera, et cetera. Then in the second half of the year, if you're organized, you have the opportunity to uncover hidden opportunities for your clients, right? Which might be helping them with budgeting, forecasting, uh, business planning. Well, one of the areas I've had some success in in the second half of the year is uh, developing marketing funnels, right? A lot of entrepreneurs aren't aware of how to generate new clients and new leads. So um, that's something typically in the second half of the year that I dive into with my clients. And that would be closer to 100% of my time in the second half of the year. So one of the things, thanks. One of the things we talk about is having an accountant on your team um, because when we make decisions in real estate or investing, they often have tax implications, right? So w- when we call you to do that, as I talk about in my book, we want people to listen and get good advice, but in the end, they make that decision, right? They make the decision so that you provide the, the consequences or the good and bad of what they're going to do, but then in the end, they decide. Yeah, absolutely. In my practice, what you see is you see a variety of entrepreneurs, right? So where someone's been in business a little bit longer and has invested in their skill set and become more informed, I'll typically lead them down a path of, of having them make a decision. Some certain clients in certain sectors prefer to have a very clear decision spelled out for them. But you're absolutely right. At the end of the day, I'm kind of an outsourced part of your management team. And I always say uh, responsibility for results rests with management, right? Because I'm outsourced, you really can't discharge your responsibilities as the president of your own company. Right. And, and I think the other part to it is as the, as the entrepreneur or the investor, you want to realize that you're taking responsibility for that decision. So you can't blame your accountant or your lawyer. You have to take, you know, you have to own that. But you have to make that decision with all of the expertise that you have. See, one of the things I find difficult for particularly young entrepreneurs and business owners and investors, and particularly the higher the education, like like doctors, lawyers, people in my profession, if you're really good at one thing, you think you're good at everything. So they don't want to listen to an accountant or even take the advice. Like they, they, that to me is very frustrating because you have to start by admitting what you don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Which is and easy I, for I, me because I don't know much, right? No, I so, <laughs> so that's well, an easy what, route. What do we all really know in the big picture? But you're absolutely right. I see it too. And oftentimes, um, when we'll call those professionals maybe more assertive, when I deal with more assertive people, sometimes the options that come to the table for them or the degree of 
selections that they have are less because they've controlled the process so much that you haven't identified the opportunities up front. So there's a difference between a client that comes to me and says, here's what I want to do, bless it, versus here's what I'd like to accomplish, what should I be doing or what, what, how should I look at this? That triggers a whole different thought process with me, right? So when I'm able to work with a blank slate, quote unquote, then oftentimes I'm able to look at it and say, well, here's a few different ways we could do this. But if you come to me and say, here's how I want to do this, well, really we're into a compliance exercise where I'm just saying, okay, yes, you can do that or no, you can't do that. So help me understand this because when I think of accounting, like let's go, let's take a step back. Why did you become an accountant? I should have asked you at the beginning, but when I think of accounting, I think all oh, those numbers, man, and every time there's a federal budget, you've got a whole bunch of new rules they throw at you and then you got a regulatory body that probably wants to make sure you dot every penny and I and all that stuff. What made you want to be an accountant? Well, let me start with why I didn't become an accountant. I didn't become an accountant because I love journal entries, okay? Trial balances and journal entries are really not uh, not my cup of tea. But that said, it's a base requirement for the job. And so something I learned like you do in any profession is that 80% of the work is just stuff you have to do, right? So why did I become an accountant? I became an accountant for the 20% of stuff that you don't per se have to do, but that you get to do. So the number one reason I wanted to become a chartered accountant was because I knew that as a chartered accountant, I'd be afforded a privilege as a trusted advisor to entrepreneurs. And so recognizing that that chartered accountant really had developed the trust in the marketplace, it was a foundation for me to become an advisor to entrepreneurs. And my goal was always a, to be self-employed. I knew that becoming a chartered accountant would be a good platform for an entrepreneurial undertaking, but I also knew that it would earn the respect of my clients and give me the opportunity to advise them. And so that's really why I became a chartered accountant. Like I said, it wasn't the tax returns and the debits and credits. It was the fact that when you're trusted by a client, now you have the ability to help them with all these kind of value add activities, whether it's strategic planning or, you know, looking at your org chart, right? Your management team or looking at um, a forecast, right? Where's your business going over the next three to five years? So that's why you got into it. But once you got into it, is that what it was like? Uh, well, one thing I'll say is it's still 80% journal entries and tax returns, right? So, and this is a mantra that I, when I'm, you know, I, don't, I wouldn't call myself an executive coach, but when I'm working with entrepreneurs, one of the things I tell them is, you know, don't let people fool you. Business isn't necessarily sexy, right? Business is just hard work. It's just a way to, it, it can be fun, but that doesn't mean it's sexy. 80% of your day is just getting stuff done that needs to get done, whether it's what you want to do or not. So I'm still always comfortable, frankly, doing bookkeeping and doing journal entries. But really, um, my practice, though, the strategy is around helping entrepreneurs with higher value add services. So because this is called strength money advice, let's switch to accounting money advice. How do you invest your money? Because I've talked about myself and all of this. What, what do you think is the, you don't have to give me details, but how, do you, how does an accountant who's really smart in the whole tax business world, how do you invest? Well, thanks for calling me smart. Who knows if that's true or not? I mean, <laughs> definitely book smart with respect to a few functions, but uh, no. So what's my view on investing? And first of all, I think what's important to note is that everyone has to have an investment plan that works for themselves, right? It needs to work with your goals. It needs to work with your risk appetite. Uh, but as, insofar as my investment preferences are concerned, uh, I'm not a big believer 
in public equity markets. So stock markets as we know them is not a place that I want to spend a lot of time. I'm a big believer in entrepreneurial risk taking. So you'd see me operating and putting capital and effort into uh, private company opportunities, right? So my current strategy would be that I have a traditional accounting practice. I also have an investment that I'm working on in a venture uh, tech type business, which we're looking to grow. And then I also um, am looking to build some investment platform in traditional businesses and investing in other mature private companies. So kind of typical industrial plays. So long story short, um, I actually too long for today's podcast. I'm really not a big believer in the long-term viability of stock markets as an investment alternative. Uh, I really believe in private markets. I believe in entrepreneurial risk-taking, and, and I think that more people will go down that path whether they want to or not, and so I would advise people to be well-equipped for what I call the freelance economy. So we should disclose, how old are you? Uh, I am actually 38 years old at the what moment, June seventh, 1980. God, I'm 62. So I've got the old man idea. So here's a question for you. How do you diversify then? Because I go back to the farmer I talk about in the book. A farmer grows corn, soybeans, uh, wheat, probably has a couple other things. Back in the day, they would have had 10 things they did. In case they had a crop failure, they wouldn't die, right? So in investing, what do you think is a form of diversification that helps you sleep at night? Sure, sure. Well, it's an interesting point, Henry, because if we want to get, you know, this is a money discussion. So if we wanted to get really technical, we could define diversification as placing your capital into investments that have a low correlation with one another, such that over time you minimize what they call systemic risk and you're exposed only to investments, okay? So try to eliminate excessive investment risk. Um, How do I diversify? Uh, Well, I'm not well diversified insofar as most of my time and energy goes into an accounting type practice, right? Um, But if I was looking to diversify, I would say that good diversifiers are uh, what we'll call direct real estate investments. Um, And I say that because an indirect real estate investment is investing in something like a REIT, like a real estate investment trust. Um, And REITs are, you know, they're not good or bad investments. They're investments like any other, but they form part of the public equity markets. And I'm not a big fan of public equity markets. So I do believe in direct real estate investment uh, in the right situation. So why don't you like, like, let's take REITs, because I talk about those in my book, and I believe in them to a point. I don't, I think you have to be diversified. But let's take something like, I don't know, Killam Properties. They have properties, they have apartment buildings. They're kind of boring, but they're apartment buildings all over. What what don't you like about a Killam stock because it's in the public versus private sector? Like, what bothers you or worries you? Well, so, okay, so again, and it's not really specific to REITs, but in, in the broader public equity markets, I think what concerns me is that, um, you know, for example, executive compensation, okay? When you look at governance, I think we're starting to see across multiple asset classes in public equity markets, regardless of the stock you're investing in. You know, when you have CEOs making $22 million a year, even when the company's shareholder returns are negative and the earnings are haven't grown in a couple of years, I think that that raises some fundamental issues about governance. And so one of my tenets comes down to, and because, like I said earlier, I believe in entrepreneurial risk-taking, entrepreneurs like to have some degree 
degree of control, even if it's an illusion, but some degree of control over their investments, right? So with a direct real estate investment, while it might be a headache to manage a property for you personally, you it gives you a connection to your tenants. It gives you a connection and skin in the game to your property, right? So you feel connected to your underlying investment. Whereas with a REIT, you have a professional management team that you're relying on. Um, and we all know, I mean, you just have to go back to the early 2000s, the example of Enron, as to how a set of books can be cooked. Frankly, without you really knowing it, okay. Coming from an accountant. Yeah, well, I mean, in big public companies have had these struggles for years, right? Look at the banking crisis in 2007. You don't fundamentally know what you're investing in with public equity markets unless you're spending a lot of time reading the reports, keeping up on management, and following the developments of the company. Well, let me ask you a couple final questions. I want to. I know you're busy and we're going on here, but let me ask you this. So one of the things I tell people is when you're sitting across from that bank person who now is a financial advisor who tells you that you should buy X, Y, or Z mutual funds, that one of the first things you should say to that person is, okay, before we get started, do you have a credit card balance and what? And, and what? How, how much are you worth? Because why would I take advice from someone who fails in money if they're giving me money advice. Now, is that a crazy idea? Or just comment on that. Just, what yeah, do you think no, about? absolutely. I mean, I think you want advisors that, let's just say you want advisors that reflect your values, okay? So if you're inherently conservative, you don't want to go out and get an eccentrically uh, focused advisor that isn't going to listen to you. So for example, I mean, one I, so I go back to know your client, right? I think that you're onto something that someone should be able to manage their own affairs, um, before they manage the affairs of others. Now, um, the flip side of that is you got to give people a chance. And if the values are aligned, right? Because for example, having been in mental health practice, you've probably seen where there's good people that sometimes just have events they can't control, right? So um, it depends, I guess, to some degree, but I, w I would tend to agree. You don't want someone who's bankrupt telling you how to manage your money. That's for sure. Well, you could argue that, like, even in my business, I wonder about this, because if I'm a – let's pretend I was – and I did – I have done a lot of marital therapy in the past, but if I was working on my fourth marriage and you came to me for marital therapy and you knew that, there's two ways you could look at it. This guy – Obviously doesn't get it because he's on his fourth one. Or he really gets it because he's had four big mistakes. Right. He's had a and lot he, of opportunities to learn. So there is that opportunity. But I guess maybe I'm being too hard on the financial guys because um, I've done this myself. And then they stop calling you, right? They don't want to meet with you anymore. But um, I found that it, it, when it comes to money, it, it seems to be – it seems to help to be around people who have had some success, a little better than the coin flip. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, let's be clear. There are good advisors and bad advisors, right? So it's kind of a buyer beware situation. There's no shortage of people in the investment community that don't have the abilities to be in that space. But then that said, there's plenty that do, right? Okay. There's some really good ones out there. Too. So, so let's close with this one. I wanted to ask you uh, this final question. So if you're sitting across from a young person today or an old guy like me starting a business or getting involved in investing, let's say with starting a business, because that's really your expertise as an accountant, it sounds like, or maybe I'm wrong, clarify, but what would be the advice you'd give them how to get someone on their team if they're going to interview you or some other accountant for their team? Uh, so are you asking me, sorry, I just want to clarify your question. Are you asking me if someone's looking to hire an accountant, what questions should they be asking or... 
Well, this is specific to because I recommend that on your team you have an accountant like yourself, a lawyer. Yeah. Like, basically, these are for the one-hour phone calls. I'm not talking about the other stuff. I'm talking about the one-hour sit-down yep. saying, I want to buy this building kit. Yep. What's it going to do to me tax-wise? Yep. What's it, Whatever. All the things you bring to it. Mm-hmm. And you want to have a person like that on your team and accessible. Yeah. And when I started earlier, Mary and I would sit down with our accountant. We'd sit down with a lawyer. And often we'd sit down with a real estate person that we you know, had had dealings with who would then help give us their opinion. And from that, we yep. would decide. Yep. So when people are making their team, when yep. it comes to an accountant, yep. what kinds of questions or what should they look for to get the right person, do you think? All right. Well, f- specifically with respect to hiring an accountant, one thing you've got to be aware of is that we really live in what we'll call a learning economy, okay? That the rules of the game change so quickly that it, you know, you really need to be looking at someone's level of motivation, okay? It's not sufficient to look at your advisor and say, well, do they have a big business or a big practice? Well, they might, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're doing the greatest work. For example, you can be in business for 50 years and have an enormous practice, but you may not have kept up on the tax regulations over the last three years. So as a quick example, in uh, July 2017, the federal government came out with proposed changes to the taxation of private companies. Um, They introduced some very complex legislation that advisors are still concerned about. And I would suggest that if your accountant is not keeping up on the complexity of these tax changes, that they really don't belong on your team in the first place. So what would you be looking for? In a nutshell, what you could ask an accountant is, how many years do you, how many hours do you spend in a year on professional development? So for example, in my case, I spend well in excess of 250 to 300 hours a year on professional development. Uh, That gives you a degree of magnitude. Obviously, it affects my earnings potential because that time isn't spent billing, but it also builds the balance sheet, quote unquote, right? It keeps my skills sharp and it allows me to serve my clients in the best possible manner. So, so, you know, how much time do you spend on professional development might be a real great starting point when you're looking to hire someone. Well, thank you, Kit. I just want to clarify, too, that when Mary and I sat down with you, I told, you, I told, them, I told the listeners why we came. And then when we came, we, you interviewed us, and we interviewed you yep. for this first visit. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, this guy gets it. He, I can talk to him. He, he, I can listen to him. He listens to me. We're a little alike as far as maybe the ADD thing. I don't know. But, <laughs> Similar but, but there's a lot of energy. He's a soul guy and transparent with his fees. I want to, I want to emphasize that. When you're talking to a professional, uh, whether it be a psychologist, accountant, lawyer, whatever, they need to be transparent to you because you don't want surprises. You want to pay value for what you get, and you need to understand that, that value does cost, and you should pay for that because in the end it will cost you that much more if you don't get the right value. But in this case, it was about a good match. I think we'll see. It's a relationship. Uh, mutual respect, and you build trust over time with consistent behavior. So that's one of the most important things, I think. You have to get your gut, and and, uh, Mary is is amazing because she has a totally different approach to things, and when her gut's right and my gut feels right, we generally think it's an amazing opportunity which happened when we met you. Yeah, absolutely. I had the same feel with you guys. And well, it's, it's like early. I, said, now, I, always, <laughs> I always feel, you know, when I when I take on someone who's been in business a long time, has done pretty well for themselves, um, you know, made investments, taken risk, and survived it all, quote, unquote, um, I'm always happy to serve them. So just to disclose, Kit didn't know I was doing this podcast. I came here, we're going to talk about a couple other things, and I happened to pull out my bag and said, hey, you got 20 minutes. So he was very open to that, and that's part of his personality, why I'm, I'm starting 
starting to love working with him. I'll tell you a bit more information. It's Kit Moore CPA. Here's his email address if you want to yeah, connect with him. Sure. And and don't ask him for free advice for crying out loud because I hate when people do that to me. Just ask if you want to maybe connect or get a phone call and learn more. It's Kit K I T at Moore M O O R E C P A dot C A, and he'll respond and happy to talk. His phone number is uh, 519-397-5500. It's not a paid ad or anything. I just uh, think that if you're listening to this podcast, it's because you, uh, you're you into this, and I think you need to get some good advice or at least get someone who can maybe steer you in the right direction. I'm Henry Sveck for the Shrink Money Podcast. Have a great week. Talk to you again next time. You have been listening to the Shrink Money Advice Podcast with Dr. Henry Joseph Sveck. Remember to pick up your copy of Dr. Speck's latest book, Shrink Money Advice, on Amazon.ca or the audio version at awesound.com. That's A-W-E sound.com. 